A passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of the first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one ultimately born, he appeared also to me. The word of the Lord. It's great to be with you on this beautiful fall day. If I haven't had the opportunity to meet you yet, my name is Andrew Wald. I'm one of the pastors here at River Oaks, and our lead teaching pastor, the man who's normally up here, David Beatty, is actually leading our new member class this morning, so I'm grateful for the opportunity to be with you. Chances are that if you're relatively new to the church, we haven't had the opportunity to meet yet because I recently returned from a sabbatical. The church was gracious enough to give me a period of leave just to go rest and to pursue spiritual renewal, and I just want to let you know how grateful I am that you as, as a congregation would extend me this opportunity. I really appreciate it, and to be honest, I feel even just a little awkward talking about it since I recognize that many of you would also benefit from a sabbatical, and it's, it's the truth. And, and at the same time, um, just so many of you have been gracious enough to come up to me and ask me about my time away, I thought it would be okay if I imposed upon you for a moment and, and made a mention of a few of the highlights for us. I'd say that if I were to liken time to a river, for about the, the past 11 years, uh, ever since I started seminary, it sure felt like I had been swimming in the white water, that I had been running rapids. But for the past three months, I feel like I've been able to hang out in the eddies, that I've been able to enjoy some still waters. And these, these calm stretches of water provide an opportunity for reading, for reflection, for scripture memory, just for some big picture thinking, for, for time to connect with God and my family. And it was wonderful. Unlike when, when Pastor David went away on sabbatical, I, I don't have any pictures of graves or crypts to show you. I, I didn't go visit the, the, the final resting place of anyone famous. But we did, we visited my parents, we visited Stephanie's folks, I uh, was able to talk Stephanie into camping for one night, <laughs> and, uh, and we took a, a big family trip to, to Austria and Germany back in July, and, and looking back, it's, I'm, just, I'm still in awe about how that trip became a reality. I have no other explanation for it other than the fact that, that God is a good, good father who knows how to give good gifts to his children. As some of you know, my dad was an was a army chaplain, so part of my childhood was spent in Germany. In fact, I graduated from a little high school over there that's no longer in existence today. But having spent time in that area of the world, there was part of me that just wanted to go back and to expose my children to this culture that I've come to appreciate. And so ever since the start of 2017, it sort of been like my secret prayer but I didn't really see how it was going to become a reality. Sometimes in the evenings, like in the spring, I would get on the computer in the evening and I would look at tickets and I would quickly fold the computer and say, well, that's not going to happen. But then just like 
God surprised us in the month of June with his goodness, and all of a sudden, just things started coming together. We had a, a, a distant relative who gave us five buddy passes on an airline that she worked for, and then a friend of a friend said, oh, you're, you're on sabbatical? We'd love to bless you. You can come stay at our place. And, and suddenly, these things that had seemed like really big obstacles were no longer such high hurdles, and what had seemed previously unrealistic began to unfold right in front of us, and, and we had a great time. I realized that you don't have to travel to have great family time, but if you go somewhere where your electronic devices can't access the internet and everyone else speaks a different language, you're going to have lots of family time. <laughs> I introduced my kids to gummy bears and Kinder Eggs and, and really good ice cream and, and whole new levels of recycling and, and, and playground equipment that's all but disappeared from the American landscape. I'm not sure whose fault it is that we no longer have real seesaws and merry-go-rounds, but we should question the salvation of those individuals. <laughs> if any of you good lawyers would like to undo the damage done by some of your peers and bring back big slides and good old-fashioned teeter-totters, my children will rise up and call you blessed. Uh, during the trip, we also visited a, a church in Munich that's doing wonderful things to reach the refugee population and their community. The, the second day we were there, we took part in their week-long camp for refugee kids. It was a, a little camp that our church helped support. And my friend, Pastor Sim, took all the kids to this really impressive uh, play area. And, and after a few hours, he got them all together, and he taught these kids the parable of the wise man who built his house upon the rock. And as you can tell from some of these pictures, I don't know if what transpired should uh, best be referred to as children's ministry or world missions. Uh, just this little church camp, in addition obviously to kids from Germany, had kids from Afghanistan, kids from Syria, and kids from several nations in North Africa. And it was just exciting to see what God's doing on the other side of the world. There's Pastor Sem with the, with the small group of kids, kind of putting the story in order there. On, on Sundays, when my family would come here, I would worship at other churches in our area. I visited everything from a highly liturgical Anglican church plant to Bishop Tejado Hanshaw's church, Mount Calvary Holy Church, which has its roots in the Pentecostal movement. These were two vastly different experiences, as you might imagine, but both churches loved Jesus, and it was a real blessing to be able to go and to attend some of these other churches in our area to gain some fresh ideas and, and hopefully be an encouragement to some of my pastor friends. At the same time, this made me realize that church is so much more than an experience that happens on Sunday mornings. I got up every Sunday morning and I went to church, but I quickly realized that that's not the same thing as being a part of a church. And it made me think about the many people who wake up on Sunday mornings and make their way into a space like this, and participate in the service for an hour, and then head home, thinking that's church, an, an event that you attend on the weekend. But, but church is more than an event that we attend on the weekend when we happen to be in town. It's, it's a community that we're supposed to be a part of. And Jesus wants us to be a part of a church because it's His means of growing our own faith and growing the faith of everyone else around us. Paul makes this point in Ephesians chapter 4 when he writes, he says this, From him, that's a reference to Jesus, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament 
grows and builds itself up in love as, let's read this together, each part does its work. Each part. And I, I just have to conclude from this that God's plan for growing our faith necessitates our being connected to other believers. Now, I know that some of you work very demanding, like 60-plus hour weeks, and I don't want to put a yoke on anyone's back. I'm not looking to do that at all. But if you've been viewing church as just an, an event you tend on Sunday mornings, I'd like to challenge you for your own good, just, just to get aligned with God's design for your life and to get connected. And, and, and if you have no clue how to get integrated in the life of the body, right after the service is over, when you exit those doors that are right in front of me, you'll make your way out to this area and you'll see we have a resource center right off to the right-hand side. And Pastor Sonny will be there. David Holcomb will be there. The other individuals that are there love to have a conversation with you and help you figure out how you can connect, how you can get integrated to the life of the body so that, so that you can be a blessing to others and so that you can receive the blessing that God has for you. Well, this fall, we as a church are examining the essential beliefs of the Christian faith. So let me ask you this. Have you ever wondered uh, what would happen if you gathered a few Christians from, say, like Cameroon and from China and from the Czech Republic and from Canada, and you, you put them all in the same room and you ask them, what do you believe? What do you think they would say? What, what, what would these individuals from totally different backgrounds with completely different languages, with vastly different worship styles, what would they agree on? Well, in this series, we're answering that question. We're looking at those beliefs that Christians across all cultures, across all generations hold in common. And rather than, than drafting a statement outlining the essential beliefs of the Christian faith, we've elected to draw upon a document that already exists. A document that's been used throughout the history of the church, and that document is, anybody want to guess? The Apostles' Creed. Great job. And so when we subscribe to what's articulated in the Apostles' Creed, we know that we're standing in continuity with those who are worshiping across town or those who are worshiping under a thatch roof on the other side uh, of the world or those who even worshiped 1,800 years ago in a catacomb. And, and today we're going to continue to give attention to what the Creed confesses about the person and work of Jesus. Last Sunday, Pastor Sonny spoke to the humiliation of Jesus. And Christians everywhere and always believe that Jesus experienced physical death. And as a way of reviewing what we've covered, let's just recite the Apostles' Creed together. Can we do this? I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the marriage of Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. Now, is that it? Is that the end? Yeah. Some of you are ready to keep going. That's good, because that's not the final period, is it? Turn to your neighbor and say, that's not the end. That's not the end, because here's what we know. That he who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens, 
We know that God the Father exerted his mighty strength and he raised Jesus from the dead. In Acts chapter 2, Peter tells the crowd, you put Jesus to death by nailing him to the cross, but God raised him from the dead. And so the creed continues. If you believe it, declare it with me. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. Today's message will have a simple outline. We shall see what Christians believe concerning the resurrection, why it matters, and finally, how it's relevant to our lives. So what we believe, why it's important, and how it's relevant. First, what do Christians believe concerning the resurrection? Christians everywhere and always believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. That's our first point. Christians believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Fundamental to the Christian faith is the belief in a literal and a physical resurrection of Jesus from the grave. When Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures and that He appeared to Cephas, that's a reference to Peter, then to the twelve, the Bible isn't saying that these appearances are like what happens on TV shows where a previously dead person appears and then has a conversation with the living. Have you seen this technique before? You know what I'm talking about? Um, I, I think of NCIS, where, where Jethro Gibbs seems to converse from time to time with his former boss, Mike Franks. Or I understand this also happens in Bones when Booth talks to his dead army buddy, Parker. But the, but the Bible isn't claiming that this is what happened at all. In fact, the gospel writers go out of their way to close the door to this possibility. We see this in Luke's gospel when Jesus appears to his disciples on the evening of that very first dinner, and this is what we read. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened, and they thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. The bodily characteristics of Jesus' resurrected body were felt and seen by his disciples. It goes on to say that that he sat down and and he ate with them. He had a piece of fish. On another occasion, Jesus told the disciple Thomas, he said, put your finger here. See my hands? Reach your hand and put it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. But, but, okay, why does this matter? If there is a bodily resurrection, why does it matter? Why, why is the resurrection of Jesus an essential belief? Why can't you say, well, I, I'm a Christian, but I just, I don't believe in the bodily resurrection. And as crazy as that sounds, there are people out there who have made this claim. A while back, I came across a blog post of a leader in another denomination who published these thoughts leading up to Easter. To say that the resurrection is essential doesn't mean that if someone were to discover a tomb with Jesus remains in it, that the entire enterprise would come crashing down. The truth is that we don't know what happened to Jesus after his death any more than we can know what will happen to us. What we do know from the stories handed down is how Jesus' followers experienced his resurrection. What we know is how we experience resurrection ourselves. So 
while these last two sentences have an air of profundity about them, you got it. They are complete nonsense. The entire enterprise would absolutely come crashing down if someone were to discover an, a, a tomb with Jesus' bones in it. This is what the Apostle Paul says when we read on in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. If Jesus is not physically risen from the dead, the Christian faith is bankrupt. It's completely meaningless. You can't claim to be a Christian and then deny the resurrection because everything hinges on the resurrection. Christianity exists because of three words. He is risen. That's why we have the Christian faith. And you can't distance Christianity from this objective truth claim and try and reduce it to a subjective spiritual experience and have anything that's resembling the Christian faith. The, the Christian faith without the resurrection would be like a flashlight without batteries. It's got nothing to offer. It's pointless. It's powerless. It wouldn't be of any use to anyone. Without the resurrection, the Christian faith isn't good news. It's no news. Christianity is good news only if it solves our greatest problem, which is sin and death. And Christianity makes the claim that God solved these problems on our behalf by sending His Son Jesus, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. And while He was on the earth, Jesus makes the claim. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in Me will live even though they die. And Jesus lived the perfect life we could never live, and he died the death we should have died. And three days later, he rose from the dead and validated his claim to be the resurrection and the life. Last Sunday, my friend Eric Brummagen showed up to small group with a t-shirt on it that had an image of a coffee mug. I don't know if you can read that, with the words, game changer wrapped around it. Now, I know some of you, show of hands, really like your coffee. You feel like you need your coffee. But really, to, to call it a game changer makes me want to borrow the words of Inigo Montoya. You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. A true game changer dramatically alters an existing situation. A true game changer has, has far-reaching effects. Everything is impacted. The printing press was a game changer. The internet was a game changer. Uh, the spinning jenny was a game changer. It ushered in the industrial revolution and nearly every aspect of our daily life has been changed by mass manufacturing. Not only has it changed the way that goods are produced, but also where people work and how people work and when people work, entire commerce has been changed, economic systems have been changed, the geographic distribution of people has been changed. See, what happens is game changers bring radical and pervasive change to the status quo. And that's exactly what Jesus did when he went to the cross. The resurrection matters because it proves that Jesus 
is the ultimate game changer. The resurrection proves that Jesus is the ultimate game changer. Jesus' bodily resurrection confirms that God's goal of a new heaven and a new earth with resurrected bodies for His redeemed people is going to come to pass. The rolled away stone validates that sin and death won't have the last word. Jesus' bodily resurrection is the first sign that the trajectory of human history has been dramatically changed. And it validates that God's rescue plan is underway and that His purposes will not be denied, that nothing can threaten, nothing can hinder, nothing can block Him from achieving His goal of redeeming and restoring that which was corrupted by sin. Some of you might be familiar with C.S. Lewis's classic, The Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe. Anybody seen this or read the book? So you know, right when you get to chapter 15, things are not looking so good for Peter, for Edmund, for Susan and Lucy, right? So the great lion, Aslan, has just exchanged his life for Edmund's, who was deserving of the death penalty. And to make matters worse, the white witch is prevailing on the battlefield, and she has a castle full of lifeless, frozen Narnians. So that's the scenario. That's the picture. And it would appear as though the reign of the White Witch, known as the Age of Winter, will continue in perpetuity. Now to be clear, C.S. Lewis never intended for his Narnia stories to be taken allegorically. But they are full of rich symbolism, he'll admit that. And entering into his story helps us experience the wonder and the significance of the true story. The video clip used in service as an illustration was that of Aslan's resurrection from the movie The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. The easiest way to see this is to go to YouTube and search Aslan's resurrection. Sorry, that's a goosebump moment, but, but I feel like that's what the empty tomb should be for us. Those of you that have uh, read the book or you watched the movie, you know what happens next. The writing's on the wall. It's all downhill for the white witch. The age of winter. He proceeds to go to the castle. <laughs> he goes in there and Aslan with his breath brings back to life everyone that has been turned to stone and then he makes his way to the battlefield. And it's a curtain call for the white witch. But even though those events have not yet occurred in the scene that we just saw, when Aslan lets out his mighty roar, we know it's the beginning of the end for the White Witch and the Age of Winter. And what happened at that stone table was a game changer for all of Narnia. And in the same way, the empty tomb is God's mighty roar. See, when sin entered the world, all of creation was subjected to futility. And each one of us, on account of our sin, is deserving of death and judgment. But Jesus' resurrection signals that God's rescue operation is underway. Jesus' bodily resurrection matters because it proves that He can change the existing situation that he can change the eternal trajectory of every person who believes in him. 
and He will triumph over Satan. And He can rescue us from the dominion of darkness. And He can reconcile us to God. He can grant everlasting life. And He can transfer us into His kingdom of light. The resurrection is the proof that what God ultimately intends for the world and His followers will come to pass. The resurrection is, is the launching of God's new creation within this present world. So how is this truth relevant to our lives? Well, it should fill us with hope and joy. It should fill us with hope and joy. Some of you might remember a television game show hosted by Regis Philpin. It first aired in 1999. It was called, any guesses, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Anybody watch this one? Okay, for, for those of you that, that never saw it, here's how it worked. Contestants are offered cash prizes for correctly answering a series of multiple choice questions that became increasingly more difficult. And to help with the questions, contestants are given three lifelines. And if you watch the show, you might remember the name John Carpenter. John was the second player to ever make it to the final round, which meant that if he answered that last question correctly, he was going to walk away with $1 million. And as Regis read that final question, was which of these U.S. presidents appeared on the television series Laugh-In? You can kind of see there, the corners of John's lips begin to move toward his ears. And a little smile forms on his face, and he says, Regis, I'd like to use a lifeline. I'd like to call my dad. Anybody remember this? John calls his dad. Actually, Regis calls first, and he turns the phone call over to John. John says, Dad, I don't need your help answering the question. I just wanted to let you know I'm about to win a million dollars. Isn't that great? John, John hadn't even answered the question. He hadn't got the big cash prize, but he knew that the million dollars was as good as his because he knew the answer. And for those of us who are Christians, it's the same. It, John began to celebrate in his spirit even before he received the money because he knew it was good as his. In the same way, those of us that are in Christ, we can begin to celebrate. We can begin to rejoice because we know that that everlasting life is as good as ours. We know that there's an inheritance stored up for us that will never perish, spoil, or fade. We know that the righteousness of Christ has been credited to our account. And, and, and all the benefits of His are going to be ours. 1 Corinthians 15 goes on to tell us this, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And not only will we be made alive, we're going to be in the presence of God. Scripture tells us that in His presence, there's fullness of joy. And at His right hand are pleasures forevermore. And one day He will dry every tear from our eyes. And all of Jesus' benefits are going to be ours. This is why Romans 8 says that Christians are not just heirs of God, but also co-heirs with Christ. This is why Paul could exclaim, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. 
You thought a million dollars was good. Wow. We've got far more coming to us. You know, all of us experience suffering in this life. It doesn't matter how much your take-home pay is or how good your health is or how smart your children are or how much you have saved for retirement or how nice your house is. All of us are living in a broken world. But people full of joy and hope handle suffering differently. I'll give you an example. If your bank called you Monday morning, tomorrow, said, hey, we just decided to have this little contest for, for all of our members, and we put all the names in a hat, all of our clients, and we just pick one at random uh, to be the recipient of this $5 million award, and we want you to know that we just pulled your name. Could, could you be here this afternoon at 4 p.m. to pick up your $5 million check? You would say, absolutely, I'll be there. But what about if on the way there, smoke began billowing from the hood of your automobile, and, 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 and it, your, your car just died right there on the side of the road, two miles shy of the bank? Would you, would you start pounding the steering wheel? Would you get out and start kicking the tires or, or punching the hood and screaming, this is the worst day ever? No. You'd probably pull your car to the side of the road and you'd pull out your wallet or your purse and you'd skip the rest of the two miles to the bank, right? A little car problems aren't going to dampen your joy when you know what you're about to receive. And it's the same way for us who have been united with Jesus. If you've never made the decision to place your faith in Jesus, I want to give you the opportunity to do that. Based on thousands of years of historical data, I can confidently tell you that the chances of you dying are 100%. That might sound morbid. I, I don't mean it that way. I just I mean it as a truth. We, we don't know when we'll breathe our last, but all of us will experience a physical death unless the Lord returns. But for those of us who are united with Jesus, that physical death is not the end. We will immediately go to be present with the Lord. And at the hour of the Father's choosing, Jesus will return to this earth. And at that moment, our perishable bodies will be raised imperishable. And like Jesus, we'll receive resurrected bodies. That which is mortal will be clothed in immortality. And the reason you should become a Christian, the reason you should choose to follow Jesus, isn't because it seems to be working for a friend or it can help you deal with an addiction or cope with stress or have a, a better marriage. Those results often follow faith in Jesus, but that's not the best reason to become a Christian. The reason you should become a Christian, the reason you should place your faith in Jesus, is on account of an event that actually occurred in human history. Approximately 2,000 years ago, just as he foretold, Jesus suffered and died and then three days later, he rose from the dead. And any time somebody can accurately predict their own death and resurrection, you should follow that person. You should pledge your allegiance to them. But i got to tell you that the call to discipleship that Jesus extends, it's a high and hard calling. Clearly, Jesus didn't go and enlist the help of any PR executives to help him refine his ask. Because Jesus says very clearly, he says, if anyone would come after me, 
he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Jesus issues a call to self-denial, to surrender. He's asking you to give up the driver's seat and to make him Lord of your life. Why should you do that? Well, Jesus goes on to give a, a stunning promise. He says this, But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel's, We'll save it. The resurrection reminds us that Jesus has the power to make good on this promise. The resurrection reminds us that walking in the footsteps of our Savior is always the best pathway that any of us can take. That we should gladly take up our cross and follow Him. And like John Carpenter in the hot seat, knowing the final outcome knowing what will soon be ours, fills us with joy and hope and gives us patient endurance in all circumstances. That's why the resurrection is good news. Amen? Let me pray for us. Our Father, thank you for doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. And for those of us who have embraced your Son, those of us who have received the forgiveness that you offer through Jesus, I pray that you would continue to enlighten the eyes of our heart so that we would know even more fully the hope to which you have called us. And that we would know that incomparably great power that raised Jesus from the dead. And we would know how it's also at work in us, as you tell us. God, we know that there are some here who have yet to receive the gift that you offer. And you've been drawing them to yourself this morning. And if that's you, you know that God's been at work in your heart this morning. I want to give you the chance to change the eternal trajectory of your life. You can pray a prayer like this. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner. And I ask for your forgiveness. I believe that Jesus is your son. I believe that he died for my sin. I believe that you raised him to life. I trust him as my Savior. And I want to follow him as Lord. Come and guide my life now. Show me how to live as one of your children. And I pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.